Hi, I'm Siggy, born and raised in St. Catharines, Ontario, and now living in the nation's capital of Ottawa. And I'm Jazzy, born in Manila, Philippines, raised in Toronto, Canada, and schooled all over southwestern Ontario. You're listening to the Halo Halo podcast, a delicious mix of pop culture and the Filipino-Canadian life. Before we start our podcast, we'd like to acknowledge the lands we're podcasting on. I'm podcasting from the traditional lands of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. And I'm podcasting from the traditional, unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. Hey, Six, March is Crime and Punishment Month uh-huh. at the Hollow Hollow Podcast. And today we discuss the documentary miniseries streaming on Netflix, Happy Jail. And then later we talk about Filipino rehabilitative justice. But before we do that, let's catch up. What in the hell is going on? with this world like it is february 27th and i'm like watching all weekend long on how russia has invaded the ukraine and stunning and it's upsetting to see this all right i'm trying to grasp for words and for us to really see a war happen in the time of social media it is earth-shaking it is scary it is it reaches all across the world. It's very hard. It, from us seeing this, uh, some ridiculous protests in Ottawa to see this at the end of this month happen, it's a lot. It, it's a lot. Yeah. It's, it's like we are hopefully getting at the end of the pandemic. And then suddenly, as you said, this whole kind of pseudo protest in Ottawa, unfortunately, and then right into a war on the world stage. I mean, that is not to say that there aren't other wars that are going on. And we know that these are proxy wars Mm -hmm. and stuff like that, but this one is just so stunning and all over social media and all over YouTube in terms of commentary. And it just makes me think that it's like, if Russia can invade the Ukraine, it's like, what's to stop China from invading Taiwan or something like that? You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what I was seeing that too. And to see leadership, in the darkest of times, be outstanding. Yeah, and so it is interesting to see how fast and swift, hopefully, that people are moving, but I worry that force is going to have to be used by NATO at some point. I think, I don't know where the limits or if Putin would actually be reasonable at all. I don't know. So watching all of this has made me just really (laughs) retreat back and get some solace in pop culture. And so... Interestingly enough, Michael and I are yet again re-reviewing Downton Abbey. Yeah. You know, so it's been a nice welcome escape from watching all this news on power and politics and CBC and on CNN and any other news outlets that we pay attention to. So it's just been a nice kind of welcome back and hearkening back to a much more simpler time. Albeit there was lots of classism and, you know, there was like the Industrial Revolution, but that's what we've been kind of doing to kind of cope with just seeing all this and hearing all this negative news unfold. How have you been kind of coping? Have you been like delving into pop culture and stuff like that to just kind of distract you? I, I gather so. Like and before we even move on, I think both of our thoughts are with Ukraine. If you can mm-hmm. do the proper research and stuff, there are people to donate to, whether it's the Canadian Red Cross. We just did to Canadian Red Cross and the mm. things people are, are doing there. It just 
we need to do something to the research, find out the good causes that you can support. On pop culture-wise, linked to our Crime and Punishment Month, there's two shows I'm watching, and they're both on Apple TV. Have you heard of the show, mm. The After Party? I've heard about it, so, but I don't know too much about it. It yeah. is a half-hour show. It's a series. I think there's about eight episodes. The After Party focuses on a reunion that has a murder. Mm-hmm. The seven episodes mm. are all different genres of TVs and movies, maintaining the sense Ooh, of humor fun. throughout. So the first episode is like a rom-com. The second episode is like a Fast and the Furious. The third episode <laughs> is a thriller. The fourth episode is a musical. The fifth episode was a comedy like a a cartoon Mm -hmm. so it's really wonderful Mm -hmm. storytelling with amazing actors like Dave Franco Tiffany Haddish but I want to say the lead is played by Sam Richardson Anik and Mm -hmm. listeners I really identify with Sam Richardson he's sort of this geeky guy a bigger guy who has like unrequited love on Zoe Chow Zoe in the show and I've never seen it's I found it like representation I'm like this goofy guy that's very bright and sort of like quirky and I'm like I I really identified with him he's very endearing but Kuya great binge Mm. it's been dropped weekly so I think the final episode is an interesting point of view from a child so it's a very creative way like a musical a comedy like they're throwing different genres and trying to pastiche it all to figure out who exactly killed one of the main characters. So it's very fun. The other one is called Suspicion on Apple TV, which... What's that one about? I haven't heard about that So Uma Thurman is this media mogul and she has her son and he gets kidnapped by four people wearing the royal family masks. (laughs) Which sounds very odd and you're like, oh, that's odd. And then you (laughs) see four different characters, like four people in Britain the next day and they're trying to figure out. They get... Three of them get arrested. They're brought into questioning, saying, are you linked? And you're trying to figure out why are they all linked? And is there a link between these four people? And like Kunal Nayar, Akritra Pali from Big Bang Theory, is in it. And Natasha Henstridge from S.H.I.E.L.D., who plays Gemma Simmons. Like, it's a very interesting, like, why are these four people connected to this kid of a media mogul? Like, what's the connection? Mm. So, again, it, it drops weekly. Very interesting about this kidnapping in London. And why are these four people linked with this thing? Are they framed? Who knows? So, yes, it's a we'll bit of a it it's, it's very interesting, but it's very linked to our little uh, crime and punishment month. Yes, it is. Yeah. It what is. else have you been into? What else have I been into? I've been finishing up and just finished up the book of Boba And how Fett. has that been? It's been really great. It had a really slow start and then accelerated to a great finale, at least for what I think might be series one or season one. It very much lays out the groundwork and explains why Boba Fett is still alive. Okay. So I think after episode six, we just call kind of expected that Boba Fett wasn't going to actually survive his fate, but instead it has explained it at least for two or three episodes, how he survived his fate and essentially why he's given up being a bounty hunter and has decided to actually do some good in the universe on Tatooine. Yes. So it's really interesting. So it's a retired bounty hunter story who's decided to protect the fringes of the galactic empire. So it's a really turn of events and keeps him on brand, but at the same time aged him as well. And then the ending or the last two or three episodes very much sets up a reunion between the Mandalorian 
and Baby Yoda, aka Grogu. <laughs> and so, so we get a perfect setup for the next season of The Mandalorian, which doesn't premiere until the end of December. Oh now, gosh. I know a lot of fanboys and fangirls and, and geeks out there were probably not so happy with this particular series. Oh. But I think to myself, Disney needed to do this and Lucasfilm needed to do this. In other words, set up the groundwork or else you'd get a lot of fanboys saying, well, how did you get from here to here? So I think that that's why some stuff was a little bit slow at the beginning, but I think it makes up for it towards the end. So that's what I've been up to kind of pop culture, which is kind of related to our Crime and Punishment Month here in March Mm -hmm. and at the Hollow Hollow podcast, simply because in some ways there are three major stories that I think are usually told by Star Wars. The first is the rebellion fighting for just causes. The second is the fight between good and evil. And then the last is really about Western, like that space Western in a lot of ways. And so there's a lot of gunslinging that kind of goes along. Thank God it's just lasers and you don't see too much (laughs) blood on any of these Star Wars movies or franchise or episodes or series for that matter. But yeah, it's a little bit kind of like a Western and has that kind of crime and punishment theme to it. So yeah, Sigs, we have been on a crime and punishment binge this month, and we're going to be sharing that with our listeners for the next several episodes to come. But the first foray into this topic is something that you introduced me to, which is the Happy Jail mini doc series streaming on Netflix. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? So when Jez and I were putting together this season and the theme of crime and punishment, we came across Happy Jail Doc, which was released about a year ago. Emmy Award-winning Filipino-American director Michelle Jose um, has been known for being a very good storyteller. She has won awards for an excellent movie called Matthew Shepard is a Friend of Mine. If you're familiar with Matthew Shepard, he was the victim of a mm-hmm. hate crime. Instead of her friend Matthew Shepard being emblem of solely that, she gives a wonderful piece on him as a person, him growing up, his family. And also she's behind another movie called Nurses Unseen, which deals with Mm. Filipino nurses in the pandemic, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in a future season. Now, this talented storyteller directed and produced Happy Jail, which is a five-part documentary on Netflix. It unravels the inner workings of Cebu's most notorious prison to reveal the truth underneath that spectacle. So most famously, you've heard of Happy Jail, the Cebu Prison Detention and Rehabilitation Center called CPDRC, became an international sensation when its dancing inmates uploaded their choreographed performance to Michael Jackson's Thriller on YouTube in 2008. Now, millions around the world were impressed by the prisoners under CPDRC's dance rehabilitation program. This documentary Mm. tells a tale from various points of view from inmates, prison guards, and this prison consultant named Marco Toral, giving voices to many of those who want to tell their stories and which are often ignored and silenced. Mm. That's a great summary, Sigs. When I saw the first 30 seconds of the series start, I have to tell you, really kind of went into it really blind. I mean, I kind of knew that it was going to be talking about the dancing inmates at CPDRC. But it started off like a travel blog. Like a travel blog of a YouTube channel of some wonder-lost Boracay boy traveler. Is the way that I (laughs) thought it was going to start. Because it was like Cebu, you know, Philippines and all of that stuff. And I thought, oh, is this like a story being told by a Boracay boy? But no, you know, what we ended up discovering, as you said, that we were landing upon the CPDRC or the Cebu Prison Detention and Rehabilitation Center. 
and then really about recounting how it became famous, as you had talked about, as opposed to what it's really infamous for these days. As you had talked about like the thriller choreography in 2007, I have to tell you, at the time when I saw that video, I thought, leave it to the Philippines and the Filipino and our culture to ensure that <laughs> recreation therapy oh, yeah. is part of one's rehabilitation. And I never thought more of it, but I just kind of thought it was a passing interest and a passing interesting thing. Same. I don't know if you had that no, kind of reaction. It, right. Did you it, have it that? It was type? that like sort of clickbait, like, oh, well, they're dancing. What else are they doing? And I didn't know much about it. And when we said, oh, there's this documentary, and I thought, oh, I thought it was going to be, like, behind the scenes. Like, I mean, what are we exposed to as, like, the normal listeners or viewers of, is this, like, Orange is the New Black? Or is this, like, Prison Break? But this ended up being so much more than this dance, rehabilitative dance, right? Yeah, I really thought it was going to be about how the thriller video came about or the thriller dancing image choreography Mm -hmm. came about. What I ended up learning, and I think it's interesting to share with our listeners, is that this dancing inmates program was really under the direction of the former Governor Gwen Garcia and her appointee and brother, Byron Garcia, who spoke. And this is what floored me, Six, right? Because it was just, here's the Padrino system at work yet again, and they appointed some person who was related to the governor, Mm -hmm. in this case, the brother. And I was thinking to myself, well, do you have any qualifications? And he was talking about how the program came about, which basically started because of him watching Shawshank Redemption (laughs) and thought, Uh. oh, I saw in the Shawshank Redemption how Tim Robbins' character played music and an aria and an opera and everyone just was like calm for a little bit. And so he then decided, let's do that for the inmates at CPDRC. And I just thought to myself... What the fuck? Oh, yeah. Like he based his, he, he didn't base it on any scholarship oh, no. or best Research. practice or anything like that. <laughs> it was movie. like, oh, I watched the Shawshank Redemption. And I'm like, great. So the Shawshank <laughs> Redemption was actually the source of inspiration for all of this. I thought, oh, I thought he was going to say, you know, I was a recreation therapist. Or, exactly. You know, I believe in exactly. the power of recreation in terms of being able to give people Channel hope. Thought, nope. yeah. It was like, I saw this, we copied it, we thought it'd be good, mm-hmm. right? At that point, I thought to myself, okay, we're going to learn about how nepotism and a chance viewing of Morgan Freeman's <laughs> Tim Robbins film really led to this kind of viral sensation. But it became evident to me that the rehabilitation was based, again, more on these lay thoughts on rehabilitation rather than criminology or public policy. And I thought it was going to focus for the entire four episodes on this. Was it four or five? I can't remember now. Five episodes. And I thought it was going to be a story about the success again, but it wasn't. Instead, you know, I was finding of one unqualified individual creating programming as a result of nepotism, right? Which has to do with Byron Garcia, which was really only the first 20 minutes of the first episode. Yeah, it was only in the first app. And then the remaining four and a half, Uh you know, hours or however long the rest of the four episodes were, plus the first first half or the second half of the first episode, you know, what we end up finding is that then it was given to another unqualified person who had come to then manage the detention and rehabilitation center. And I just thought to myself, this is effed. This is so effed, right? Instead of actually bringing in someone with like criminal justice knowledge, rehabilitation knowledge, criminology, understanding of public policy. Yeah. I just thought, what? And what did they bring like, in? And what did they bring, Kuya? L- listeners, if you haven't watched They us- brought in... So this Toral was known as a consultant. And Toral 
what he was bringing to the table was actually his lived experience of being an inmate. So that was his story in the newspapers from inmate to prison consultant. And I just thought, okay, okay, I can, maybe I'm just being Eurocentric here and Western focused. And I thought, okay, maybe there's something here that will actually kind of explain this, but it just gets even more and more fascinating. But before I kind of pivot that way, you know, Sig's like, what did you think? Like, as it was kind of unfolding in that first episode. I am amazed by Michelle Jose's direction on this story because I thought the same thing. I'm like, and I remember watching the first 15 minutes last August when I said, oh, we should watch this show to focus on the in our podcast. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. That's the background. I'm like, okay. And then I was like, really? Shawshank Redemption? And literally, they're only in for the first 20 minutes, like the old guard, Governor Gwen right. Garcia. And then all of a sudden, we're introduced to this narrator, this person who's telling the story, one of the senators, Marco Turral. And at first he kept on saying Sir Marco. And I'm like, at first I said, did they say Sir Marcos? And I'm like, what, what's happening? No link there. But, and it took a turn. I'm like, where is this story going? Right. And that's where I was like, they just turned this, the last 20 minutes of the first episode. And I'm like, oh, this isn't what I thought the story was going to be about. This is what's going on. And it was just this, I don't know how she got her crew in there. Where it's like, they're in there filming. This is what's going on. And you see the choreographer. I'm the new choreographer. I'm very proud. Oh my God. What prison has a choreographer except the CPDRC at this point? (laughs) And, you know, when I think Siggy kind of brings up the point that the two interesting things that Michelle does as director is is that she introduces us to originally what we think is an omniscient narrator. And then what's fascinating is that we find out that this omniscient narrator is actually actually unqualified. And as we figure out how unqualified he is to actually run this really complicated system, especially around criminal justice, do we see it all kind of go to shit, for lack of better words. And so it was just incredible. It was just incredible just to see Terrell, this consultant and the new head of the prison, mm-hmm. is placed in charge by his friend, the governor, Governor DVD, yes. right? who oh, succeeded boy. the other yeah. Gwen Garcia, who was the original governor who had actually instituted this through her brother. So yes, yeah, so Terrell acts as this narrator of what I think will be, again, the story, and that somehow he was going to make the program better because they were talking about how even though under Byron Garcia... There was success Mm -hmm. because they got a viral sensation and they were pumping out different videos. They said that they weren't being treated nicely. And I thought, oh, obviously there was like prison labor. That's against international labor organization conventions. That's forced labor. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking to myself, okay, Terrell's going to get in there. His lived experience is actually going to humanize them. And then again, he seems rather omniscient because it's like he seemed to know all the woes and problems that the prison inmates were having. And he seemed to be given this kind of position of all seeing and all knowing, which is why I think Michelle positions him as, you know, an omniscient narrator. And again, he's saying things like, I know that the inmates are missing their families. So creates the Dalau days, days, you know, visitor day. So families can stay, not just visit, but stay and stay over for the weekend, which I just thought, I remember when they were kind of revealing that I was just thinking to myself, but then how do you manage all of that? And how do you make sure contraband's not kind of coming in? And I just kept thinking about this. This has to go awry, but he seems so sure of himself saying, this is what they need. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. Okay, well, that's going to be, fascinating. And then also really stressing to the guards how they really had to 
to respect the prisoners. And I thought to myself, okay, that's good too. That's good too. But then what we realize or what I soon realize is actually he's intimidating the guards to make sure that in the end, it's the prisoners that actually have say and and run of the the center itself. So, Well, especially when they have lead prisoners, like is it the Bunyol? I can't even remember the word. And there's one of the lead guys that like his go-to guys that would lecture all the inmates. His name was Leto. Mm. And he should have went to the other prison. Yes. And they said, oh, no, we're going to keep him here. They would scratch out the order for him to be removed. And he would just be one of those guys on the inside. Like, you know, Sir Marco's treating us well. Let's stop, you know, have no contraband. And it just, it was almost like godlike him overseeing everyone. And it was, I I don't know about you. Like, how did you feel? Like, I got tense in episode two where I was like, what's happening here? I was shocked. I was just shocked. I was just thinking to myself that one scene that you're talking about where they were actually denying transfers of really dangerous people to higher security prisons and institution. It was like, but how do you know that they shouldn't be under more extra supervision? Like, is what I was thinking. And I thought to myself, and are you really meeting the criminogenic needs of the inmates at the end of the day? And so his reasoning was really fast and loose, and his methods were really questionable. Like, I remember just seeing him actually train the prison guards, and like they were doing this strange duck walk around the pool. And I just remember, if it wasn't Terrell, it was someone associated with Terrell saying that that their training was very credible to how security in the U.S. is trained. And I just thought, this is preposterous. That's not how people are trained, right? A wooden paddle to each of the security members of like a U.S. detail, that doesn't happen. And then you get your butt kicked into a pool. Yeah, that's not equivalent. No, it it felt like hazing. And it's like, how is this training security? Yeah. And the hazing was really to be in agreement with Tural and what he says, as opposed to actually, if you will, providing security, protection and safety for everyone involved. To me, it was a sad story. It was a sad story of how Tural really wanted to be liked as opposed to actually meeting the, doing again, his job the, yeah the criminogenic yeah. needs of the inmates and the detainees because at the end of the day they had needs and i thought oh that dalao day you know having visitors right and i thought okay yes that's right because they had kind of covered the background story of how he had missed his family felt suicidal felt really depressed and and he thought you know maybe we'll introduce that and i thought oh that's clever you know making sure that they have the visitation but then really the visitation actually leading to eventually what we see is a, one of the prisoners actually escape and using those days to his advantage oh my gosh we have to remember this is in the philippines this is not like in north america where visitor day you get registered they check your identification you basically got a white piece of paper and a tag, they would check you and they put a stamp on your wrist yes. for you to visitor day. Right. So what's shocking is this person, Noi is his name, escapes and they're on the hunt for them. So when Jez mentions like these alternate ways of like abiding and they want to go out and get this guy back and bring him back to the prison, because obviously I think Toral knows he's going to get in deep shit if he doesn't bring him back. Did you watch that plot line where they went to the escape felon noise family and went to them and they're just like, hi. And he comes with his right-hand man, Jesse, this young guy who I, I feel for. And they come with guns and stuff. Well, we're not here to do that. They're giving money to the wife and going, get him here now. We're going to bring him back. Tell him to surrender. It's not a big deal. And this woman with two little kids, she's like, okay, I'll get him on his phone. And they all have these old phones. They're like, oh, he's coming. And 
Oh, he's going to go to the Barco. Let's go to the Barco. He takes the family of Noi, the wife and little kids, late at night. And he's like, well, here, here's some more money so you can get milk for your kids. And let's find him. And and this goes on for 24 hours. And there's somewhere else. And obviously, Noi just escapes. He doesn't come back. And what was so upsetting to me and shocking was Noi's wife. He goes, let's leave her here. We're not going to get him. I don't care what happens. They can figure out how to get home. And Mm. literally, you see Noi's wife left with her little kids being uprooted just so they can say, please surrender, just go back to him, like, so nothing happens to us, and they're just left in the middle of nowhere. Well, and what is also interesting, too, is that if it wasn't for the fact that the news outlets Uh, grabbed hold of the story and then put pressure on the governor, which then saw Gwen Garcia, who was acting as senator at the time, put even more pressure on the governor, saying, what is happening at the CPDRC? If it wasn't for that type of pressure, I'm sure he would have said, screw it. He was smart enough to get away, let him get away. And he was only doing it. He was only trying to chase only simply because his reputation was at stake. And so it was very clear at the end of the day, he was masquerading around trying to meet the needs of the inmates when really he just wanted to be liked. And that's kind of what it came down to. So that's like the second interesting thing about this Happy Jail mini doc series is the stunning inadequacy of not meeting the needs of the inmates. And I don't mean like making them happy, although that's kind of what the title suggests. It's about actually meeting their psychological needs, welfare needs, basic human rights, all of that stuff. We start to realize that the gangs are thriving within the prison. Drugs are still alive and well within the prison. Did you see how many people in the cell? Yeah. It shocked me because they were talking about the number of people in the cells, and then all you see are like, what, 20 pairs of chinellas? Yes. In front of each cell. Yeah, they were overcrowded. It's shocking. It was incredible. Each cell probably had like 25 to 30 people when it probably could have only held 10 to 15. So just basic living conditions were just atrocious in that they were overcrowded and made me think how many human rights violations are occurring here and the lack of privacy. And again, him trying to actually control this overcrowded prison was really about him appeasing People and saying that it was meeting the needs when actually he wasn't. When in fact he was actually part of the game at the end. So yeah, maintaining basic human rights of the inmates and allowing that overcrowding to occur. Like it just made me think, you know, they needed to properly fund, you know, the CPDRC and have more type of resources. The third observation that I have is the level of minimization and collusion that was kind of going on, you know, like from the guards to the choreographers to quote unquote the lead dancers. What I found stunning was how, (laughs) how were the lead dancers chosen by the choreographer? It wasn't by their talent. It was by the fact that they were going to be the ones that were staying the longest. In other words, those that were up for really serious charges were the lean dancers because if they were just in there for a petty theft, there was a good chance that they were going to be gone in two weeks. And I thought... What is this? And then, of course, at the top of all of this is Toral heading up the collusion and we see a number of people putting on a show and then this is what got me was all the tourists on the second level of the CPDRC watching, watching and paying to watch the dancing occur. And I just thought to myself, 
this is a form of forced labor. And I'm like, this is no longer what I thought, you know, back in 2007 or eight, you no. know, that this is some type of innovative recreation therapy being introduced to help meet the needs of the inmates and the prisoners within there. The other type of minimization was noticing that they just kept calling it. And I know that I've called it throughout the CPDRC. And it's interesting Ugh. that the, the more that they keep calling it that, and the more I keep calling it that, I forget that within the name of the center is rehabilitation and ironic. Uh, yeah. And I just thought that that was ironic, right? That the acronym itself gets lost, loses the idea of rehabilitation. And in the end, like you don't see a detention center, which is also encoded within its name. And instead what it looks like, it's just like a halfway house. And so, and then the last kind of observation to make or last couple of observations to make is that the minimization also occurred with the security. Like I just remember how one major drug dealer player surrendered and they were worried about his safety. So they just install a video camera at, in terms of where he's staying. And I just thought that's not ensuring safety. If he needs to be in some type of secure facility, perhaps that's where he should be transferred to. And then just the... Interesting way how mental health and drug-seeking behaviors was criminalized was also an interesting message throughout all of this. So like those were just some of the observations I made in terms of watching this, like that level of minimization and collusion, and again, that inadequacy of not meeting the needs of the inmates, as well as this whole idea that Terrell sets himself up to be this omniscient narrator, but is really unqualified at the end of the day. So I don't know if you've got anything to add to some of those observations. I'll be honest, listeners, it was a hard watch in some places. Um, one of the ways they had a big hunt for the drug dealers and they said, listen, if you're using drugs, we're going to catch you. We're going to give you 20 paddles. If you're the drug user, we're going to give you like the drug dealer. We'll give you 30. And when he says paddles, there's this large paddle and it's labeled final option. Mm. And they didn't directly film it, but the sounds from these people being beaten with it was, I have no word after seeing this. I'm like, this is happening. And my wife's like, this is a documentary. I'm like, this is a documentary. This is what's happening. And Toral's team would beat, like, give the beats to those people who were dealing drugs. It was just eye-opening and shocking. And what Michelle Jose did in the narrative, she did focus on some of the people mm. that were inmates. And there was one guy, Rico, who's like this admitted drug user. He's like, I've been doing this since 1979, and it happens, and I'm in this cycle, and I, where else am I supposed to go? And there's another one. I forgot his name. There's another one who's always had this happy face. And, you know, what the happens? The younger like, guy. Gonna, yeah, I the can't remember guy. his name. Because yeah. you, you always look at him and, like, they were part of the dance troupe. And he's like, we don't have Dalau days. So what's going to happen? If, are we just going to hang ourselves? Yeah. Like, as an altar. It just it made it bleak. It was, you know, those trying to instill it hope. And, like, the ending and the little epilogues about some of these characters were a lot to take. It's just... Right. I thought it was shocking. And yes, Kuya, I think you really hit those things. I'm like, is this a rehabilitation center? This is a halfway house? Like, what is this? And this exists. You yeah. know, I don't know how they got through, how Michelle's team got in there and was able to really document this and yeah. really expose. Yeah, you know, the documentary and its major message to me was threefold, that rehabilitation is really about appeasing the inmates as opposed to actually helping them take responsibility. And that mm -hmm. the second message that I took away too was punishing mental health and drug-seeking behaviors, which of course has to do with Duterte in power and having declared a war on drugs. Right. And so you see that actually kind of take place here and what leads to the overcrowding of the CBDRC, mm -hmm. the detention 
Women Rehabilitation Center. And for me, what's most stunning is the lack of professionalism and knowledge to manage and run prison institutions. That's what I kind of took away from watching this series. And this documentary essentially then encouraged me to do a bit of a deep dive in generally understanding the criminal justice system in the Philippines and its views on offender rehabilitation. Yeah. And so, Mm -hmm. like, as far as I'm concerned, there's probably four major points that I wanted to tell you about, Sigs, that respect to offender rehabilitation, there's a general and inspirational narrative of wanting to rehabilitate offenders. And... Scholarly work in the Philippines seems to suggest that there still remains punitive attitudes towards offenders. And what's most shocking to me, and I did not know this, and it was interesting to read and find out about this, is that the death penalty was abolished in 2006 only to see... Yeah, isn't that interesting? Like the death penalty in the Philippines was abolished in 2006. And before that... It was actually rescinded, then brought back, and then rescinded again, right? So it's kind of been this kind of on again, off again, on again, off again. Currently, it's abolished. And then in recent years, we've seen bills brought forward to reintroduce it. And of course, it's, it's notable history of it being removed and then reintroduced is really speaks to this idea of seeing offender rehabilitation still as punishment as opposed to anything else. So that's one interesting thing to note. That is super... 2006 was not long ago. No, 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 no. I mean... That's what shocks me. I know that there are other parts of the world that still have the capital punishment or death penalty. I think what's really interesting is the fact that there was kind of like, you know, we had it, then we rescinded it, and then we brought it back into, again, and now people like want it reintroduced in some ways. And so mm-hmm. if you look at some of the political platforms for the upcoming election, that there are certain candidates that would be in favor of actually seeing it be reintroduced. And again, that's less about rehabilitation and more about punishment. And it just says really about the Philippines' ambivalence towards rehabilitation. The other common narrative, or at least recently a common modern narrative with respect to rehabilitation and criminal justice in the Philippines is framing the war on drugs as something to be punished and having a presumption of guilt. So it's not that it's like you're innocent until proven guilty. It's like you're guilty and we're taking you to to prison, which I think, period. There's no discussion. There's no jury. There's no trial. And then... You know, again, rather than one, rather than innocence or viewing drugs as an issue of mental health and an indicator of a really greater social and societal problem, it gets criminalized instead. When my understanding of drug-seeking behavior and addiction and dependence is, is that they're really indicators of something else and something more structural, and it typically tends to be around poverty or inequality or other different comorbid mental health issues. So I just think, huh, interesting. Like there's still kind of like a punitive piece around seeing drugs instead of actually seeing it as an expression of mental health and societal problems. And then the last couple of observations in terms of my own deep dive is the idea of accountability and qualification. So we saw here in the happy jail mini doc, but we can probably see it in other places as well within the Philippine criminal justice system is (laughs) narratives of law enforcement being subject to corruption and a lack of accountability or even professionalism or knowledge. And so interesting that in the Philippines, they have lots of scholars on criminology. And in fact, I find it really fascinating that when I'm traveling in the Philippines, I see lots of people with degrees in criminology that are posted outside of their homes and stuff like that. Yeah. And yet 
where are these people and why aren't they in some sort of power actually directing the policy and the programming? And instead, these positions tend to be given to someone that seems to be unknowledgeable, unqualified, or not professional at all in terms of managing, running, and rehabilitating inmates. So I find that really sad. And then like the last observation to make, at least with respect to my deep dive, is reconciliation, I think, and responsibility taking are very big concepts, at least in Western society and Eurocentric North American society in terms of offender rehabilitation and rehabilitative justice. And Mm -hmm. if you look up the word reconciliation, the Tagalog word is bakakasundo, which really, really translates to getting along, which kind of speaks to Marco Toral and his whole point of view of like, oh, we're just going to get along. And true reconciliation is about kind of getting along, getting along with others, but it tends to be one way, meaning the person who's offended is the one that is charged with getting along. It's not the other person who was offended against or harmed. And what I'm starting to realize from, and we'll be talking about this in a future episode in terms of Filipino true crime podcast in Lagim, but just as a preview (laughs) to all of that, is that apparently we have to make a lot of concessions, not just a few, but a lot of concessions to offenders. And I really think that responsibility is really on the inmate or the prisoner who has to be encouraged to take that. And instead, it's seen more as appeasement more than anything else. So that's kind of what this whole documentary made me do, was just do a really big deep dive on, you know, what is the Filipino rehabilitative justice system all about? And these were some of the things that I discovered, Sig. It's a whole lot. It was just eye-opening. Kuya, do you think the system itself suffers for it being in a third world country? I don't know that I call the Philippines a third world country. I kind of think of it as the Philippines being in the global south. So these days there's a divide between the global north and the global south. And I know that there are critics to naming, you know, making those distinctions as such. I just think that there are people that have, if you will, more human rights underpinning to seeing rehabilitation with respect to offenders. And I think Mm -hmm. that the Philippines is probably steeped in some old notions of what rehabilitation is. In other words, they think of it more as punishment than anything else. And I do wonder if that has to do with Catholicism and the influence of missionary imperialism in some ways. And if it does, then there's something a bit problematic about that because they're starting to lose the idea of even compassion and yet being tough-minded in one's approach, you know? And so I think it's either too much appeasement and accommodation or overly punishing, but not something truly in the middle where you can still meet the needs of offenders, but still be tough-minded at the same time. I don't know. I think that's going to take a bit of a path for the Philippines to get to seeing where I see them now. I think you just opened up another episode for season five. <laughs> yes, that's, I think so. We might have to kind of, yeah. Um, yeah, we'll have to unpack that, uh, you know, probably next season. So all of this just really leads me to the fixing of the week, remembering that appeasing others or overly accommodating others is not really the path to rehabilitation. It may actually spoil, you know, or give people that mile if you've given them just a little bit of an inch if they haven't actually truly deserved to be given that inch. So again, appeasing others or overly accommodating others is not really the path to rehabilitation is the fixing of the week. Listeners, if you have a chance, Happy Jail is streaming on Netflix. Michelle Jose 
weaves a very interesting story. It's compelling, evocative, and really makes you think. Tell us what you think, too. Email us at hollowhollowpopculture at gmail.com. The Hollow Hollow Podcast is available where you can listen to all podcasts, rate us, and leave us a review. You can find us on social media, Twitter. Our handle is hot hollow hollow pop, and we're on Instagram at hollow hollow pop culture. Finally, we receive editorial feedback from Mary Beth Badian. Our musical theme is by Chell Turingen, and we'll see all of you guys again real soon. See you guys.